2: Everybody, welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Fantastic. You know, I'm uh I'm here. I'm a little tired. Sure.
3: Uh not exactly sleeping uh lately. Just a lot of things. A lot of things going on. But uh Rumination. Good. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like uh Oh, God. I can't say that out loud. If I say it out loud, I might cry. Uh, The next time we record, I will have one less child living in my home. Wowzer. Which is heavy for me to think about. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, when I drop my dogs off at, like, the vet, sure, and I watch them go into the back, that's when I say, I don't know how people have human children. Like, I... I don't get it. It feels right. to me like it would be crushing every day. <laughs>
3: uh, it's it's tough. I mean, with, with human children, um, you get a lot of, like, during the summer, you get constant comments of, like, pretty excited about them to go back, huh? Right. Like, because that's, it's just like the stereotype, I guess, of kids are driving me crazy all the time. And it's like. Sure. I I'm used to because school takes up so much more of the time than the time they're off. I'm used to they go out the door and then just head down and I work for eight hours and then they come back through and then it's just chaos when they come back through and keeping with a schedule and all of that. It's a lot. But uh, I like seeing their little faces. I like having them around And the only pain in the ass that I thought would happen this summer uh, was uh, my my older two obviously get themselves drinks whenever they want. My youngest one could like he could grab like a juice box or something. But if he wants something like actually poured, usually it's quite a large jug and he can't do it on his own. So he asks me and then I have to stop what I'm doing, go in. And that drives me insane. So I bought these little, little plastic reusable kind of bottles and I pre-fill them with like, I make a big jug of like iced tea, Kool-Aid, whatever, pre-fill a bunch, leave them in there. And like twice a week, I refill them. Like as soon as he's done with it, he rinses it out, puts it on the thing. I later wash it. And once I have enough of them clean, I refill them, put them back in the fridge. So now he doesn't ask. He'll ask if he can go get one, but I don't have to do anything. I keep working. I just go, "Uh uh-huh. And he gets his own snacks. He does all of that. So it's fine. So the only difficult part, I fixed for myself.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. So as
3: far as I'm concerned, yeah, let them stay here. Because currently, my alarm is set for so much later in the morning than it will be when they go back to school. And then it's just... They're so they're not crazy loud during the day. I worried they might be, but they're fairly quiet. And so it's not the worst. But it's just, I know one, as soon as they come home after school, they have to tell you everything that happened that day and go through it all. And it's lovely and beautiful. But then it's just chaos and loud and talking over each other. And it's just too much
2: in that moment. Whereas the summer, they don't got to tell you shit because you were there all day. <laughs> You know, yeah. not to psychologist hat you this early <laughs> in the episode, but what I like was that I said, I can't imagine being a parent because when you have to see, send them away and they're not with you, yeah. that's so intense. And you completely deflected into talking about how you like them home, <laughs> didn't bring up the older one going away. You told oh, me everything uh, I needed to know in that deflection. You know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, I, I read I, you yeah, like a book.
3: Yeah, the older... Uh, I have a tough time. I have a tough time sending them first day of school because I know how I feel first day of school. So I'm just worried that they're going to be anxious about it. Uh, The older one, I mean, bless him for having this, uh, making the choice. He decided he wanted university. He chose one, chose a program, got himself registered. Like he did all of that. And then he let it go. And he told me, Heads up, that's where I'm going. And him and my husband both went, okay, well, I guess someone should figure out everything else.
2: Oh, dear.
3: So, I found him a place to stay, and sure, I'm paying for it. Um, And... I had to, like, oh, yeah, like, what on earth does he need? Oh, we got to sign up for it. We have to schedule a time. A day that we, there's a very specific day that first years get dropped off, and we had to schedule a time, because it's a nightmare of a thing where you pull into a very specific spot. They have volunteers that come and help you unload all of the stuff, and they take the stuff and the student, and they take them to the place, and you have to take the car to a parking lot very far away. Well, my son also has a car that he's going to be leaving there. So I'm like, well then what happens? I can't even think about it. That's that's a uh, future me's problem. But he didn't once consider like, god, I wonder if the bed I'm going to have there will need blankets of any kind or a pillow or maybe I'll need soap while I'm there or toilet paper or anything. Like it's just none of those things came to his mind. So I made the the big list, and I've done multiple shopping trips and shopping online to buy all of this stuff, and it keeps me up at night. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> because that's they, what I they, was looking for. Keep shopping. They you up put it night. all. Yeah, they put it all on me without realizing it. Of just like, we'll figure it out, because that's what they keep saying. We'll figure it out, and it's like, but you won't.
0: No, because, you'll you know, figure I'm gonna, it
3: out. I'm going to swoop in and be like, here you go. Here's all the shit that I've been buying to prepare you for going but yeah oh i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna take it well it's yeah. gonna be tough because i also don't know how long he plans on going before co- having trips home it's gonna be weird him not being here it's a whole thing that i am not quite ready for there it is and then i realized it's only a couple of years and then my next one goes on to high school and i'm like no. Cause high school is the blink of an eye. <laughs> yeah. Wow, well, we're doing good work here. Doing good yeah, work. Yeah. Yeah. Grade nine is is really slow. But after that, just over in a heartbeat, and the next thing you know, they're gonna leave the nest and I am not prepared. Yeah. So it's just it's a lot of things happening at once sure if it was just him going away and i was dealing with that fine but then it's like you've got another one that is kind of showing like high anxiety about things so then i have to like i don't know light example uh participate in football practice to make him less anxious about it where i come off the field and go god i need a water like that shouldn't be my life but it is now so just a lot of things keeping me up. Just you know? Yeah. So we'll see. Who knows what wreck of a woman I'm gonna be uh the next time we record. Speaking I, of which, last last episode, yeah, I believe, um, I made we ended up talking about my kids in the hospital. Yes. And I was like, well, thank God, like it was just the once whatever. Well that very afternoon no my oldest came home from work early and i was like that's weird he's not normally home for like another three hours oh no he he actually left work hours ago because he had to go to an emergency room and get stitches that's right and i i just went are you kidding me today today and he's like why what's wrong with today and i was like first of all (laughs) today was the day i put out an episode that i talked about you guys going to the er again though Dear listeners, you're right. I was also not there for that injury. <laughs> so, Th- there you so go. Still not my fault. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I love that. My concern is people thinking it's my fault. Obviously, it wasn't. I wasn't there. Uh, he's perfectly fine. But what I love is he's injured a hand. Mm-hmm. We we have to move him in in multiple days. So how ha- how helpful is he going to be now to move all his shit? So now I've had to enlist the younger two who can't lift as much. But I'm now I'm like, we were going to see about like dropping them off with a grandparent. But I'm like, no, now we need the hand. We need the bodies. So you got to come with us. And they're both like, uh, about the idea. And so now now I'm roped into going to fucking Chuck E. Cheese after to make it up to them. For- <laughs> It's also a tradition we uh, started a few years ago of before school, we go to Chuck E. Cheese and just have an afternoon. But apparently that's what we're doing.
2: I went to Chuck E. Cheese last, I want to say 20 years ago. Oh, And wow. yeah, I got to be honest, the pizza was delicious. This no was, kidding. now. this was a Canadian Chuck E. Cheese. I haven't been to one here. Um, but how is the pizza now? Does it hold up? I'll say it. I've never had the food there. It. Oh, you go for the games. Oh, a hundred
3: percent. It also used to be you buy tickets, right? Or you not buy tickets. You buy coins, like tokens, and you, you, that's how you do it. Now, you buy a wristband that has time on it, which makes it feel more hurried. And so you're like running around, like scan. You scan each of the machines. And as long as your wristband's still going, you're fine. Um, I commented to my younger two. I was like, "We're gonna do this." They didn't like it, and I was like, "And to make up for it, we'll stop at Chuck E. Cheese. That'll be your that'll be your thank you for helping us with this thing." And they both were like, "Yes, great, love it." And my youngest went, "Oh God." but what game am I going to play first? And I'm like, you, I I get it, man. Like you want to be organized. You want to know what you're doing, whatever. And then we were like trying to keep it light. I was like, well, what are your favorite games there? And he goes, my favorite game is checking how many tickets I have, (laughs) (laughs) which is classic him and very beautiful. Uh, But I, and my middle one just went, that's your favorite game. And he's like, yeah, I like to see my tickets and i'm like oh he's he's a collector he he's likes, his
2: mother's son is what he is he absolutely is it's it's wild yeah he wants to look it's at his wild. treasures remind you of anybody um <laughs> oh i recently uh purchased an insane
3: insane amount of uh baseball cards cuz he's For interested him. huh and it started with Well, I'll just buy a couple from this, I think Mm -hmm. it was last year. So I'm like, I'll just buy a few packs from then and whatever. Well, and then he wanted he wants a binder because he likes to flip through and look at them. And I was like, understood. So I found a little baseball binder and I was like, this is very cute. (sighs) Well, there's 300 cards in the set. and Wouldn't you know, the binder will hold that many. And well, I guess I'm buying a hobby box because I need to get enough of these stupid things. Wouldn't you know after that we're only 6 cards short of the whole set. Hello eBay, let me look up the rest of the 6 cards we need. So now he has that whole fucking set. <laughs> because he complained that before well there weren't enough blue jays in it. And I'm like, I don't organize the cards. Like I don't like I don't pick who's on what card. But of course blue jays are his favorite and just very like Didn't seem like there were enough in there to me. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe they're the ones we're missing. We'll find out soon when they arrive. Point is, he just, he has a binder for every sport that he loves that he has cards for. And they sit on a shelf with all of mom's hockey cards. Mm -hmm. So we have like the card station and he goes to it and he's the only one of the three of them that really has that deep-rooted love of cards. And I'm like, yep, there it is.
2: Well, there it is. does he have a really deep-rooted love of cards? Or does he have a really deep-rooted love of things his mom loves? Oh. Oh, that would be beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you. I know I'm right. I know I'm right. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean,
3: this is the child that, uh, I mean, after three, that – It all ended up being boys so not named after me in any way Mm -hmm. that I just snapped and went, we're going to figure out a way to name him after me. (laughs) Yep. And we did. Uh, Not the point. Uh, Point is, it's there. Uh, I I feel justified because, yeah, he is the most, he is the most like me. Yep. He definitely has the anxiety like I do. And, uh. Yeah, love of cards. He just likes seeing, watching him flip through them, I'm like, that is, yeah, that is how I look at cards too. Well, he's seen you do that. Oh, yeah. We, there's a, oh God. There was the sticker book. I think we've mentioned this before. Similar to like the sticker books of our youth. Of course. Where it, you know, it's got the number on the back. You flip to the page, you stick the sticker there. For whatever God knows why reason, there are over 600 stickers in this book, almost 700. And I'm like, it's unnecessary. They could easily That's too have much. half. It's too much. We almost have them all. <laughs> we had about 100 we didn't have. And one of the, on the very, very last page, there's like a Stanley Cup made out of six or eight stickers. Because, of course, you have to put them all together. We were missing one and it eats him alive. (laughs) And I know because it eats me alive. Because every time he looks at that book, and he loves that book so much, it's falling apart. Anytime we're like, we're going in the car for a while, bring a book to read, it's his favorite one that he brings, because he just wants to keep flipping through it, which is very beautiful. And how I've justified paying as much for these dumb stickers as I have. We have bought so many stickers that of course, you end up with doubles and then triples and whatever. That my middle one was like, if you get any doubles, I'll take them. So I'm like, well, if you're getting doubles, I should get you a book. Well, But I ended up with so many triples. I now own <laughs> one of these fucking books. Which yeah, is insane. Do I don't need it. I don't want it. I actually got to the point. I had to take a break putting the stickers in it because I was just tired. And I don't, I don't want the sticker life. I want slipping the card in a pouch that's the life I like this I was like it was too much um but yeah if you think I haven't gone on eBay to pad out his his stickers so that he can finish off that book and that I'm gonna try and beg him that we never go back yeah that's the plan and are these probably gonna be like Christmas things yeah and he's gonna get that final Stanley Cup piece. I'm jazzed to see it when it arrives. I know it's going to, I know he's like, I know based on my reaction, how he's going to react. It's going to be, it's going to be a beautiful thing. I love this. It's August. And yeah, I've planned out, you know, some Christmas things in advance. Sure. For example, the other day, uh, my husband, (laughs) while uh, I think we were grocery shopping or something, I stopped to look at books. I was I was supposed to head a certain direction, and he was like, I have to stop this way. I'll meet you there. So I went, okay. And then he, I saw him walk past, and I, I called out to him. And he's like, how come you aren't there? I've been several minutes. And I went, I got distracted looking at the books. And bless his heart, he was like, would you like to go to a bookstore? Maybe like a chapters? And I was like, I would love that. I would love that because I don't have a lot of access. Uh, But I have so many books that I haven't read, like just piles of them right now that I'm like, I don't need anymore. But he was like, this is something you'd like to do. I'm like, it is. It is. And I mentioned it so many times. And I was like, don't let this be a thing we forget. Let this be a thing we do. And he was like, okay. But we're like, well, we don't feel comfortable leaving our kids alone. When we're out of town, even for a few hours, it's like when, when we're in the city, it's different because we can get home immediately out of town. It feels different. So we're made sure that our oldest was around and we went the next day and we spent the afternoon. Um, the money that I spent, like we walked in, we got a basket. I almost needed a second basket like it got
2: Bad. Like, I've seen you at a Funko store. I, I know how this works.
3: It, it got bad. My whole point of it was, uh, did I purchase a Christmas gift for you there? I did. God Bless was you. I so jazzed about it because it made me laugh so hard? I was like, yes. Um, but I, I didn't even think twice. I took a list. I spent two hours prior to this trip planning out what books I was going to look for. Checking the website to see if that store had the books in stock. Because if not, I wasn't even going to bother looking what section the store, like which section each of these books were in, so that I could do it in a timely manner. I was ready to go. Bless him, he followed around behind me with a basket. And I just kept like every time we were a different aisle, we'd come back and I would be arms full of books to put in. Like it, I can't even begin to say how much it cost me. It was a lot of money, a lot that I didn't have. And then We could barely lift the bag. We get it in the trunk. And my husband's just like, wow, okay. You probably don't want to go anywhere else, right? Because this is probably enough. And I went, no, I I think we should go somewhere else and find something else to buy. And he's like, what's that? And I was like, our son is leaving for college soon. I'm clearly not ready. Did you see what's in the back there? (laughs) I'm buying things to cover what I'm feeling.
2: (laughs) You're medicating, yeah. yeah. So
3: we went to another store. Uh, I picked up a couple of vinyl I was very excited about. And then I get to this section of the store and it had these little mystery bags. And you know, you know, you've seen me around a mystery bag.
2: It's your kryptonite.
3: It is. Especially because what are these? Classic video game controller keychain things.
2: That's cute.
3: I was like, fuck yeah, I'm on board. And I look at the package, there are eight different ones. The ones I wanted, I wanted classic Nintendo and I wanted the Game Boy. There was a ninth one that was a, a gold fancy chase sort of situation. But I was like, I don't need any of the other ones. I really just want those two. And so I'm like, well, how many do you grab? And you can't tell because each of the things were, each of the controllers were inside a box Inside the bag. So even squeezing it, you couldn't tell. So I was like, oh, shit. How am I going to do this? How many? I've never seen these before. I'll probably never see them again. I'll grab four. Move on with my life. They were $10 a piece. Jesus. But I was like, it's okay. I went Christy Target mode. Ah, uh, yeah. So I was like, I'm going to buy these four. And then my husband got distracted and was buying something. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to get one more. I'm going to go back. I'm going to buy one more. And then we're, we can leave the store. And he goes, okay. And I went back and, well, there were two more sitting there. And that didn't feel right to leave <laughs> one. So I bought all six from the store. And then I opened them in the car as we drove <laughs> uh, to get dinner. And I got, I want to say, I got one of the ones I wanted. I got the Game Boy. And then I got like four other ones. I got the golden Game Boy, which I wasn't expecting. And of all of them, I think I got two that were the same or something. But I was like, I was riding that. I was chasing the high. I was like, this is exactly what I need. It's distracting me. It's the dopamine I need and I yep. want. But I also now deeply want that classic Nest controller. So while we're at dinner, boop, 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 on my phone. Oh, look, they have another store. On this side of town, a different side of town, and they have some in stock. If you think I didn't get him to drive across town, go to that other store so I could buy another four. Did I you get s- the one you wanted? I spent $100 it's not important. buying 10 of these fucking things. I got the one I wanted. Well, in in the end, of the nine I could have gotten... I got eight. Wow. Yeah. There's only one I didn't get, and I don't care. There was a part of me that was like, go on eBay, get it, have a complete set. And then I was like, calm down. You don't need or want it. So my plan, I was like, but also, I'm like, what am I going to do with these things? The dopamine's over now that I'm,
2: <laughs> now that I'm, the opened. distraction from your son, your oldest son it, moving out yes. of the house has come back. Yeah. I get Yeah. It. Yeah. I'm like,
3: what am I going to do with it now? The answer is, I've decided. Christmas ornaments. I'm going to hang them on my tree. Cute. But I got some that I haven't opened yet because I kept them in their the little box. And if you think those aren't going to go in a stocking for my middle kid who I think will love them.
2: Listen. So I I'm have like, my little Star just... Wars tree, too. The little, the little one that's only got those. See? Yes. Oh, I think this
3: is going to be, this is the smartest thing I think I've ever done. And what I've done is I brought in dopamine, I spent money foolishly, and I brought up Christmas. And that was what I needed that day in that moment when it was getting to be too much. What's going to happen to me at Chuck E. Cheese once I've let him go? The answer is the amount of time I'm gonna put on everybody's bracelet and everybody's gonna get one and we're all just gonna go
2: our separate ways and cry as we play our games. Well, I think I'm one gonna... of you will cry, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, only me, yeah. I look forward to yeah. seeing you get getting extremely invested in the ticket system at that Chuck E. Cheese that yeah. day. That's what I look forward to. Yeah. And then well, you're gonna my... be like, well, all I got was this little bracelet, this little plastic bracelet, and it'll be a symbol of your emotion. And maybe oh, a sticky think, hand. Hopefully they've got a oh, sticky hand. I pray that
3: they do. Bouncy balls? Yeah, 100%. Oh, well, you if know, you think I'm not going to try and convince, like, oh, I'll, whatever tickets I get, I just want to play some of the games. I have very specific ones I like, sure. especially skee-ball. But I'm like, if you think that I'm not going to let my children, like, whatever tickets we all get, we'll split them in half. Half to one, half to the other. Done. And then if we could just stop at that bookstore one more time on the, way.
2: <laughs> I'm picking up what you're putting down. The, here's a joke.
3: I ha- I I love that I'm I'm gonna say I have to. I don't have to, but I bought so many books that I ended up <laughs> saving money by buying the top end membership because I already had a card. But you get those for free and. After so many purchases, you get points and all of this. But when you get the one that you pay for, you get ten percent off all your purchases. You get free shipping. You get all of this shit. I ended up even paying for that. I saved more money than what I paid on that
2: because. So what I'm hearing is you got a deal.
3: I did, and I got like twenty dollars off, twenty thousand or twenty dollars worth of points. For my next time, I pay for something, but they ex- th- that twenty dollars expires in a month.
2: <laughs> so I'm like, well, I have to go back. <laughs> and that, folks, is how they get you. It's a dopamine <laughs> trap, and the people at Chapters damn well know it. Chapters they Indigo, do. whatever. We love your we love your stores. Not a slight. We're just saying we know your business model and it's salt. Yeah, and look, um, we know I love it there. Yeah. And that's listen. That's all that matters. Now I got to ask, what you drinking over there? Oh,
3: I, uh, I've gone for just a water and a Slurpee because I tonight is about pronunciation. Oh, sure. Yeah. Tonight's going to be a tough one for me verbally, so I can't be tripping over my own tongue
2: in this one. So, of course, I get that. Now, listen, I yeah. have a special drink. Now, do I have hey. empty Gatorade bottles and diet Coke cans beside me? Yeah, all of empty. Course. But then I've got a water, and we got sent some wine. Now, we were not been paid by this company. We were just sent product, which means sure. I feel I can give a real review because I'm not being paid one way or the other. You know what I mean? Of course. Um, this is Nomadica Orange. Now, this is, of course, something that I've gotten really into, which is they call it skin contact white wine, where they leave the skin of the grapes on when they're making the wine. And often it's, like, orange-flavored, and it is absolutely delicious. Uh, now, I've not tried this kind before. I'm opening the can as we speak. What I love is this adorable little can, which is very pretty. It says on the back, one can equals one third of a bottle. And I think they're doing that because these are so little that I think they're like, hey, just a reminder. Three of these, <laughs> you've drank a bottle of wine, uh, which I like. They have art on here. They credit the artist. Um, hey. uh, I, they've, they've got a whole thing that talks about why you're going to love this wine that ends in... You'll have to stop yourself from dancing. Hey. Um, all right. So let's give it a go. Oh. Oh, that's nice. Hey. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Listen, these orange wines, these skin contact wines, I had tried one on my birthday uh, a couple years ago. Not most, my most recent one, my 2022 birthday. And I became obsessed. It's just, it's refreshing. I'm into it. So there you go. I'm going to say it. Nomadic Orange. Not a fan of the idea of
3: skin contact being (laughs) something that you call anything you would consume. Um, I hear skin contact and I think of newborn babies resting on like a bare chest. Yeah. For the skin contact because that helps them um, after they're born. It's just... Skin contact just is too human for me to consume. So it freaks me out to a level. Yeah. Maybe I should start
2: doing that with the dogs. (laughs) (laughs) I just assumed you had already. No, no, no. I don't. I absolutely don't. I got to say also very quickly before we get into it, uh, Bean today... She just, she couldn't recover. I, I had so many service people coming to my house, which is a whole other story I'm not going to get into, but there's been lots of things going on in this house. And uh, she gets a little protective, as people who listen to the podcast may notice. If, there's, if she mm-hmm. sees somebody walking by, we've all heard Sergeant Bean, uh, yeah. Officer Bean on the podcast. Well, she could not recover about this guy being in the house, so I had to put her in prison. I had to put her in a room with a gate up. And it's it's a fairly wide opening to this room, so I've got this kind of like accordion long gate that's there, but it it's lightweight, obviously. So I've put hand weights at each end, so two at each end, so one on either side. If she didn't move that ten pound weight with her paw, she is six and a half pounds, and let me tell you a little something. Much like a mother getting the strength uh, to lift a car. I think in this moment, she was like, I have to protect my home and my mother and my family. And literally she was like, I was like, this is, this is wild. Yeah. The fact that
3: she was able to move a weight more than her own body weight absolutely justifies um, (laughs) when I gave her the wrestling belt
2: toy which she has destroyed that that just feels right it was one of her very favorite toys and she absolutely destroyed it until it was in complete shreds she had gotten the squeaker out like it's dead it's 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 we had to say goodbye to the the wwe belt but she loved that thing
3: yeah i mean I, i guess i knew
2: she had it in her yeah listen again to quote that vet treat her like a german shepherd I guess I should be if she's moving weights twice her weight. But anyway, um, my goodness. Let's get into it. What are we talking about this week? The answer is the Lake Bodum murders. I know absolutely nothing about this. Um, this, of course, is a case that takes place in Finland. Yeah. So over on Patreon, we do polls where um, our patrons can vote on what they want to hear covered on this feed of the show. And we decided to give a a, a bunch of different regions in the world... Um, as, as the options, Europe got chosen and Christy chose a Finnish case, which I could not love more because I don't think we've ever talked about Finland on this show. We haven't. Um, it's going to be tough. (laughs) Yeah, I'm reading the names here and they do seem trying. So we will do our best as always. Uh, and listen, I think it's great that we're, we're, uh, we're giving Finland Oh, yeah, these are interesting. <laughs> uh, we're giving Finland some coverage, so it couldn't be better. Um, yes. For those of you who are not familiar with this case, like me, let me give you a little background right now. In the summer of 1960, four teenagers went on an overnight camping trip on the shores of Lake Bodum in Finland. The next morning, their tent was found ripped and bloody. All four teens suffered horrific injuries, and only one of them survived. And while there were multiple suspects, no one was arrested for the crime for over 40 years, when new DNA evidence suggested another suspect. Who is the newest suspect, and what happened during his trial? Join us as we deep dive one of the most famous unsolved murder cases in Finland's history. So, who were the other suspects, and were any of them linked to other murders in the area? Christy Oxborough investigates. As always,
3: disclaimer off the top... This episode will contain mentions of suicide, so trigger warning for those who need it. And as we have already alluded to, I would like to apologize in advance for any mispronunciations. I have gone as close to the Finnish pronunciations as possible. Please bear with me. I'm doing my best. Some of these were a challenge. And it was a challenge for my family to see me in front of a laptop, pressing a button, hearing someone say the name, and me going, what? Five times in a row. And then me going, I think. it, Yeah. Even the voice sounded as though it was tired. Like, it, it was just like, again? I know that that's not what the voice was saying, but I'm a broken woman at this point. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. She's doing her best. So, on Saturday, June 4th, 1960, four friends traveled 18 miles or 30 kilometers on motorcycle from Vonta to the south shore of Lake Bodum. In Finnish, the lake is actually called Yaravi. But for the sake of my English speaking ass, we're just going to refer to it as Lake Bodum because that feels easier for me.
2: Of course.
3: So the group included 18 year old Seppo and Taro Boisman, his best friend, 18 year old Niels Wilhelm Gustafsson, and their girlfriends, 15 year old Myla Ermela Bjorkland. And 15-year-old Anya Tuliki Maki, who went by her middle name, Tuliki. And I know that I have just thrown a lot of names at you at once. So just to clarify, the group included the couples Seppo and Tuliki, who had been together for maybe a month, maybe two months at the most. And then there was also Niels and Mila, who had been dating for about three weeks. Seppo was the oldest of the group. He had turned 18 in January. He worked as an apprentice electrician. Niels was the second oldest. He turned 18 in May. He was described as very popular. Mila was the next oldest, uh, as the trip occurred just two days before her 16th birthday. Tuliki was the youngest and had just turned 15 three months earlier. Her father had been against the short camping trip, but Tulikki's mother convinced him to let their daughter go. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Due to Finland's choice of conscription, both Niels and Seppo were joining the army in a few months' time. All Finnish males are required to serve either 165 days, 255 days, or 347 days at some point between the ages of 18 and 29. The group arrived at Lake Bodum, which is about 16 miles or 27 kilometers west of the Finnish capital of Helsinki. Each couple rode on a motorcycle, and they brought a single tent for all four to sleep in. They spent the day fishing and swimming, and according to Mila's diary, the boys consumed alcohol, and Seppo, who was quite drunk, went fishing at 2 a.m. Now, there are conflicting reports uh, as to who first found the crime scene. A local carpenter named Esko Johansson brought two kids to the lake to swim around 11 a.m. when they discovered the mangled tent and left to call police. Around the same time, a man named Risto Siren went out for a hike. He discovered the tent and called police. Uh, Regardless as to who of them was first, on the morning of June 5th, police arrived on scene around noon to discover a light-colored tent that had been slashed and was covered in blood. Inside the collapsed tent were the bodies of Seppo and Tuliki, whose face was covered with a scarf. Myla's body was lying on top of the tent, and Neil's was lying near her, unconscious but alive. Niels was the only one of the four teenagers who was still alive. He was rushed to hospital with a broken jaw, a fracture on the left side of his head, a concussion, and superficial stab wounds. There were also abrasions on the fingers of his left hand. He was later released from the hospital on June 27th. When police arrived on scene, They determined the other three victims had been dead for more than six hours, placing their time of death between 4 and 6 a.m. According to the autopsies, which were performed on June 8th, Seppo suffered cuts to the face and stab wounds to the stomach, throat, chest, and lungs. He had a fractured jaw and a cranial hemorrhage. His cause of death was internal bleeding. Tuliki suffered a cranial fracture, bruising to the brain. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma. Mila seemed to take the brunt of the attack. She suffered bruises to the head and face, a fractured jaw, and about 15 stab wounds, including one that punctured her cervical spine. Jesus. Mila's cause of death was blunt force trauma. While Myla was discovered naked from the waist down, according to the medical examiner, there was no sign of sexual assault. The victim's belongings were spread throughout the site, and the boys' motorbikes were found leaning against trees near the tent. However, the keys for the motorbikes were missing, along with the victim's wallets, some clothing, their watches, Seppo's leather jacket... And Seppo's knife. Police found shoes belonging to Neil's partially hidden with some of Neil's clothing about 3.3 3 miles or 500 meters south of the tent's location. The lake area was searched with divers and metal detectors, but as of August 2023, the rest of the missing items, including the murder weapons, were never found. Wow. The investigation was a mess from the start. Police didn't bother to secure the area. So not only did multiple police officers and nosy looky-loos just walk through the scene, but so did dozens of soldiers who were called in to help search the lake for the missing items and the murder weapons. Police also didn't seem to record any details of the crime while they were at the scene. So I don't know why they even bothered to show up. Maybe they were just all in shock. It caused them to let their guard down. I don't know. So with little investigation and most of the items at the scene so saturated with blood that any physical evidence was destroyed, the police just didn't have a lot to go on. They determined the attacker didn't enter the tent at any time, and that the attacker likely cut the tent ropes, causing it to collapse, and then attacked the victims blindly through the wall and roof of the tent. When Niels was interviewed, he couldn't remember anything from the attack or even the day leading up to it. During the investigation, Niels agreed to undergo hypnosis three separate times between July 2nd and 3rd to try and uncover as many new details as possible. Under hypnosis, Niels said he briefly saw the killer through one of the rips in the tent. He described the attacker as a Caucasian male, approximately 20 to 30 years old, between 5'7 and 5'10 with long blonde hair that was combed back. Niels also said the killer had acne on his forehead and cheeks, a very prominent jawline, big eyes, and thick lips. Now, a 14-year-old named Olavi Kivilati was fishing just west of the campsite on the morning of the attack. Olavi said he arrived in the area around 4 a.m. where he was waiting for his friends to show up. He said he didn't hear anything or see anything when he showed up. But around 6 a.m., Olavi said he saw a man walking away from the area. He couldn't be more specific because Olavi had myopia, Uh, a.k.a. short-sightedness. Olavi said he left the area around 8 a.m. when he realized his friends had stood him up. Bless him for willingly sitting there. For four hours. Like Niels, Olavi agreed to be put under hypnosis to try and help uncover more details about the man he had seen fleeing the scene. Through hypnosis, Olavi said the man was Caucasian, 20 to 30 years old, between 5'5 and 5'9, with brown hair and dark pants. And while I get that hypnosis was meant to help Olavi recall more details, is it possible for him to see them more clearly in his head when he couldn't see
2: them clearly due to being short-sighted? I think there is some science to that, but I don't know how... I don't know. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I think there is some, and I don't know a lot about it, but I think there is some that it's like, your subconscious can clock things in a different way, but... I think it's a real debatable. Sure. Yeah. It just felt very like
3: yeah, I guess I don't know. Like if somebody with who has bad eyesight if they see something like it, is it suddenly
2: clearer in their head than it is,
3: I don't know. Like I think there might think be about some, it.
2: Yeah. I don't know. No, I agree with you and and I think I think it's an interesting question. Because I think that there's yeah. probably some science to prove either way. True. I also just
3: feel like, did this kid just want to be involved? Well, because it also feels like he sat there for four hours. Well, also, but he didn't hear there's
2: anything. But there's also no, was he a suspect? No. I might be getting, how was he not a suspect? I guess th- I'm assuming they assumed because
3: he was only 14 at the time that there was no way he could have. Done it, but
2: well, 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 I think that you know as well as I do, that absolutely means nothing. And the fact that he had no one to corroborate his alibi, which was sitting alone near the crime scene. It's also wild. I'm like, you didn't hear any screaming. I I love that we're already getting into it. And I'm just like, (laughs) why was this kid not a suspect? Absolutely. If four people were being brutally murdered, there's no way that you wouldn't have heard something. It's camping. You're in the middle of the wilderness. I don't know the area, but one would think, you know as well as I do, you can hear anything if you're out there.
3: Oh, yeah, especially at that time of day, like at 6 a.m., when there's probably not a lot of
2: sounds happening. Yeah, 4 to 6 a.m. is the time of death. Yeah. I I mean, listen.
3: There there are going to be suspects that come up that you're like, they didn't do anything about that guy? Because (laughs) I just don't know... This whole thing is madness.
2: I also just, my last question, then I'll let you get back to it. Yeah. What does Olavi look like? Does he fit the description of the first one, or you don't know? Yeah, I don't know. I've never seen a photo of him. Okay. <laughs> I just, don't, I love Again, that I'm already, right. like, he's got to be involved. Again, the, simplest, right. the simplest explanation is usually yeah. true.
3: Again, this is a group that went... Oh, my God, what a horrific murder. Everybody come look. Yeah. And didn't like didn't like the fact that they didn't secure the scene from outsiders. The the fact that they let police in was already too many. But still, fine. I'll let that go. But the fact that it was like just town locals who were like, I heard there was a body.
2: Let's see. And they were like. Be quick about it. <laughs> like it's like Stand by Me. It's finished. Stand by Me. Oh my God. Well, that's your movie right there.
3: Except it turns out one of the looky loos
2: was the killer.
3: Usually, that's is that's what would happen. In a quite party. often, yeah, quite
2: often. Anyway, yeah. sorry to derail you.
3: No, no, no. This is uh, this is what I live for. Yep. Uh, also, in the area at the time were two boys who were bird watching. They said they saw the collapsed tent from where they were, but they weren't close enough to see any details. Around 6 a.m., they saw a blonde man walking away from the area where the collapsed tent had been at the time. They didn't think anything of it because it was just a guy out for a walk. Throughout the investigation, police interviewed 4,000 people, including the five people who would later be seen as suspects. The one person the police didn't get to speak to was a man that was seen in the crowd at the funeral for Seppo, Taliki, and Myla on June 13th. The man has not been identified to this day. He bears a striking resemblance to the sketches the police released based on the description given by Niels, I will post a photo uh, of the man from the crowd along with the sketches on our socials at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Not Detectives, but I can't guarantee what gets posted on there because that site got weird and I don't really know how to handle it. And I'm aware it's called something else now, but not to me it's not. I don't think it is is to anybody. No. So... Since the mystery man has never been identified, the first official suspect was Pauli Lu. Oh, I gotta say that faster. Pauli Luoma. Not to be confused with the Finnish writer of apparently the same name. Ah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Pauli, in this case, had escaped from a labor camp shortly after the murders occurred. I don't know what made him a suspect to begin with especially if he was in a labor camp when the murders occurred. Uh, but he was questioned by police and quickly released um, after having an alibi for the night of the crime. Uh, Pauli was in Otaniemi, which is about 11 miles or 19 kilometers from Lake Bodom. I have to assume uh, the alibi was able to say that Pauli was with them between 4 and 6 a.m., Because 11 miles is not far, you could easily travel there and back in a short amount of time, but no potential motive was ever given. And again, from what I can tell, he was in a labor camp at the time. I don't know. Um, But it seems that Pauli was only ever suggested as a suspect because of his sketchy behavior after the crime, since he doesn't seem like he was connected to the crime or the victims in any way. It was just the fact that he fled town quickly after it happened. Could he have been involved? Maybe. Could it have been like, Some kids were brutally murdered near where I'm living? I'm getting out. That is also possible. Yeah. So, the second suspect wasn't linked to the case for nearly a decade. Interesting. Penty Soininen had a long criminal history of crimes in the 1960s, including assault and robbery. At one point, while serving time at a local jail, Penty confessed to a fellow inmate that he was responsible for the Lake Bodom murders. And while Penty was living in the area at the time of the crime, he was also only about 14 at the time, So it seems unlikely a 14-year-old would be able to overpower four teenagers at once, including two 18-year-olds. Not unlikely, but who knows? Uh, Due to Penty's history of mental illness, psychosis, and drug and alcohol abuse, the police just didn't take his confession seriously. There was also nothing that linked Penty to the crime. Um, Then on June 6th, 1969, which is one day... After the ninth anniversary of the murders, Penty hung himself at a train station while he was being transported to the, vision, to the village of Toy, Toyela. Uh, Penty was 24 at the time of his death. Is there something significant about the date? Was it just because he didn't want to go back to prison? Did he specifically choose the date because it was like an anniversary? It was as close to the anniversary as he could get. Who knows?
2: So I will also just say, I feel like, yeah. you know, if these people were attacked through the tent, yeah. I feel like that requires less force because it would be discombobulating and they can't see and well, and they're also, basically being luck.
3: trapped by the tent. So good luck getting out because you'd have to lift it because in one of those tents, you're only getting out that front bit. This I, mean, is, I guess that's
2: with most tents. So this is literally my biggest nightmare. You know what? I'll say this right off the bat right now before we even get into the rest of it. This is another reason why I don't camp. Continue.
3: Oh, look, I camped as a child. Like, my family camped a lot. Uh, We've mentioned the camper uh, on this show. Um, And as a kid, I was like, yeah, fun. Great. Loved it. Uh, Went as an adult. It's different. Yeah. It's different when you go as a carefree child who's like let's go swimming oh my god dinner's ready when we get back that's amazing um and then you go as the mother yeah and all of a sudden it's like well somebody's got to make that dinner yeah somebody's gotta organize what we're gonna bring go shop for it pack it pack things for the children to keep them occupied Check them for ticks if they're too, like, there's just a long list of things. Um, and and it, it just, I camping's not my style, yeah. it's not for me. Uh, it's it's so cold at night, and then it's stifling hot the second the sun peaks out. I, I'm speaking specifically as an adult who has gone camping in a tent, and I it just wasn't for me. Yeah, no, my it's not for me. Either. This.
2: <laughs> he's not interested,
3: he's, he's well aware. So, suspect number three is a man named Carl Valdemar Gilstrom. He went by his middle name of Valdemar. The Gilstrom family owned and operated a kiosk about 0.3 miles, or 482 meters, west of the victim's campsite. The kiosk sold drinks, gum, ice cream that sort of thing. At the time of the murders, Valdemar's wife and their 12-year-old daughter worked at the kiosk while Valdemar worked as a gardener. According to the wife, the four victims stopped at the kiosk the night before their death. Uh, They purchased four bottles of Jaffa, which is a soft drink, usually orange-flavored, four bottles of Pilsner, which is a type of beer, and two packs of chewing gum, which is Mm -hmm. self-explanatory. Valdemar was described as short-tempered, hostile, and nervous. Apparently, he took great issue with tourists and campers who would flock to the area in the summer months. People said that Valdemar was known for cutting down tents and throwing rocks at campers. Mainly, his biggest issue was noise. Uh, In 2016, a local named Johansson told a Swedish language news website, quote, The locals knew that Valdemar cut the tent strings so the tent fell down, laughed out loud, and left. This is what the kiosk man always did if someone dared to set up a tent on the site. He chased away everyone who came there to camp. Uh, This guy also made a comment about, like, anyone who was local and knew that man Knew enough to never camp in and around that spot where the teenagers camped. Wow. Uh, Johan, which is also wild to me, where it's like you own a business that uh, very much s- requires the public. Yeah. And then the public show up and you're like, boo, hiss, and you like throw rocks at them. That's a bad business model. Yeah. But, uh, Johansson added that when he was a teenager, Valdemar hit him in the back with a rock as Johansson rode his bike past the kiosk. He said that Valdemar was very territorial over what he felt was his section of the lake. Valdemar's uh, wife said that he was home with her on the night of the crime. Their daughter, also said, as far as she knew, her father didn't leave the house that night. Uh, the wife, their 12-year-old daughter, and a 6-year-old son slept in a bedroom in their house, while Valdemar usually slept in the kitchen, which apparently was off, the or the bedroom was off the kitchen, and the door between the kitchen and the bedroom was always open and visible. So they could see him, and they both said, As far as they knew, yes, he was there all night. But there was also a rumor that Valdemar was seen filling in a well on his front yard just days after the murders. People suspected that Valdemar might have hidden the murder weapons or the victim's stolen belongings in the well. However, the property was searched using police dogs, but nothing incriminating was found. Police questioned uh, questioned Valdemar in March 1966, which that is almost six years after the crime. Uh, the reason they questioned him then was because a neighbor tipped them off that, you know, he kind of hated tourists and campers. Some later claimed that uh, they had seen Valdemar walking away from the crime scene that morning, but they said that they had been too scared to call the police. And f- from the only photo of him that seems to exist on the internet, um, he did not appear to be a blonde man. Got but it. Who knows? Uh, on August 2nd, 1969, nine years after the murder, Valdemar drowned in Lake Bodum. His death was ruled a suicide as his mental state had worsened over the years. His daughter said he suffered from depression and that his mental health struggles had put him in the hospital during World War II. Days before his death, Valdemar and his daughter got into what she described as a violent argument. She threatened to call the police if her father didn't calm down, so he left to go drinking with their neighbor. While intoxicated... They, the neighbor said they talked about engines. Then Valdemar got upset and said he had some sort of big issue. He started crying and swearing and then he said, quote, don't you understand? I'm the murderer of Bodum. What am I doing? The neighbor said that if he was the murderer, then Valdemar should go drown himself because once the police found out, they'd put him in prison for life. And After a three-day binge, Valdemar headed to the lake. When his son went looking for him around 6 p.m., the son was told his father had dove into the water just a few minutes before the kid got there. And while he dove in, he had not come out yet. The son borrowed a boat to go search for his father, but they found nothing. Valdemar's body was found the following day, 203 meters west of the place where he had dove in. He was 59 years old. His death was claimed to be a suicide. However, I think it's also possible that Valdemar's death was merely an accident. And yes, it happened at the same place where the murders occurred. So many people have suggested it was a symbolic location based on his guilt over the murders. However, Valdemar's daughter said her father had been swimming at that same spot since he was a kid. So maybe the location he chose had nothing to do with the murders. So was Valdemar the Lake Boda murderer? Police found no evidence against him. It was all just local gossip and the words of neighbors. And witnesses in the area said the man they saw leaving the scene was about 20 to 30 years old. Valdemar would have been about 50 at the time of the murder. It feels unlikely he would have been mistaken for someone that much younger. And according to his wife, Valdemar was home all night that night. But on her deathbed, Valdemar's wife recanted her alibi and said not only was he not home that night, but he had also threatened to kill her if she ever told the police. But if Valdemar was responsible for the crime... Police didn't collect his DNA before Valdemar's death, so now there may not be any way to connect him to the crime.
2: Wowzer! Didn't see yeah. that coming. Didn't see that turn coming. Yeah. Shit. <sighs> well, listen, this thing is getting juicy as hell. Let's uh, take a break, grab a drink, hit the can, and we're gonna be right back with more on the Lake Bodom murders on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, Christy was into the third of the five suspects in the Lake Bodum murders case. Uh, I want to be honest, I've I've read the name of the next next suspect, but I'm just going to let you... I'm I'm not going to steal your thunder. You get into it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, suspect number four in this case, and this is his real name, Hans uh
2: That's a, listen, I bet you over there, maybe, maybe it's not, but th- what a curse of a name. My God. <laughs> uh, well, and that's the joke. That's, uh, as
3: soon as I read it, I was like, that's not, oh boy. Oh dear. Like, I just didn't know what to do. But if, if any of our listeners are from my home province of Saskatchewan, Sure. You might hear the name Asman and immediately think of Dear Sweet Dick Asman of Regina. That's now, not. Dick worked for decades at a Petro-Canada gas station in in the 90s he got transferred to another location but he was so beloved in the community that the gas station made put an ad in the newspaper letting customers know that he had moved to a different location so that they could still go find him if they wanted to well someone sent that newspaper ad anonymously to the late show with david letterman and letterman spent months making dick asman no pun intended the butt of many jokes <laughs> sure and eventually dave or Dick. Dick. There we go. Dick did appear on The Late Show. And it was a whole thing, and he is very well known in and around uh, the province. But um, maybe listeners from Saskatchewan hear the name Assman and think of Dave Osman. It's pronounced Osman, but it is spelled Assman. Uh, Dave tried to get a personalized plate with his last name in good old Melville, Saskatchewan, sometime in the past decade. He was denied because the wording was listed as an unacceptable slogan. After being denied, out of spite, Osman got a massive decal printed on the tailgate of his truck, takes up the entire tailgate. It looks and is printed to look like one of our license plates, the same kind of font, says like land of the living skies or whatever uh, like it's looks just like a just a massive license plate and it says Asman on the back of his truck he got that in 2019 and that's the kind of spite that uh I relate to oh yeah i see it i spite calls to spite <laughs> Mr. Asman i see you and i see what you've done um or maybe non-Saskatchewan and Saskatchewan listeners both uh, hear the name and think of the Seinfeld episode in season six when after a mix-up Kramer receives a vanity license plate that says Assman. It was meant for a proctologist, of course, but does any of this matter? No, but I could (laughs) not possibly go through the rest of this episode without mentioning this after saying the name Assman. I love it. Assman, I believe it's more pronounced asthma in this uh, situation, but unfortunate. I, yeah, anyhow. So with that out of my system, we're going to talk about Hans. He was born in Germany in 1923. He emigrated to Finland in the 1950s and 60s before moving to Sweden. Hans was rumored to be a former KGB spy and had a reputation for being a recluse. So what made Hans a potential suspect in the Lake Bodum case? Well, for one thing, he lived near the spot where the victims had been camping. Secondly, he bears a slight resemblance to the sketch that the police released of the suspect. Thirdly, after a description of the possible killer was printed in a local newspaper, which stated that police were looking for a man with long blonde hair, Hans suddenly cut his long blonde hair. And also, at the time of the crime, Hans was 36, which is closer to the 20 to 30 age range uh, than the previous suspect, for sure. Uh, On June 6th, the day after the crime was discovered, Hans went to a hospital in Helsinki. The hospital staff said that Hans was aggressive and nervous. They said his fingernails were black with dirt, and his clothes were covered in red stains, which the doctors believed was blood. However, the police didn't take the hospital staff seriously, so the clothing was neither collected nor tested in any way. My God... One of the doctors who treated Hans went on to write three books about Hans and his potential, potential connection to the Lake Bodom murders. A former police detective named Madi Pallora claims that Hans called him personally in December 1997 to ask the detective to listen to his life story. According to Pallora, Hans served as a Nazi soldier during World War II. He worked as a guard at Auschwitz. But then Hans fell in love with a Jewish girl. And once the Nazis found that out, he was sent to the Eastern Front, where he was captured by Soviets and sent to a prison camp. To spare his own life, Hans, who was just in his late teens at the time, agreed to become a spy for the Soviets. So former Detective Pallora claims he has p- potentially connected Hans to five unsolved murders. Wow. What are they? Well, he didn't list them all, but I do know about three. Um, two, I mean, technically... I mean, God, he might have been talking about five separate murders. I, I'm technically talking about two. One involved two victims. Got so it. So that's how it came up. Uh, the first was the murder of Kiliki. Sorry, in May 1953, Kiliki was last seen biking home from a prayer meeting in Oh boy, Maricarvia on May 17th, 1953. Her remains were discovered in a bog five months later on October 11th. Kaliki was just 17 years old. An estimated 25,000 people attended her funeral. Wow. Yeah. Police had three main suspects throughout their investigation. The first was a parish priest named Coco Kenervo, who was seen in the area on the day of Kaliki's disappearance despite the fact that coco had moved three uh, moved away from the area 3 weeks earlier however coco had a solid alibi for the entire day and night of kiliki's disappearance the second suspect was vitori lamus vida limus La uh, who lived less than two kilometers from where Kaliki's body was found. Vittori also had been found guilty of a sexual offense in the 1940s and had been placed in a mental hospital. Police believed that Vittori and his brother-in-law were in on Kalicki's abduction together because they both worked in a field that was only 50 meters from where her body was found. When Vittori's family was interviewed by police during Kaliki's disappearance, they said Vittori was home with them all night. In fact, he was even in bed by 7 p.m. I already don't believe that. Yeah. Uh, Vittori told police that Kaliki was dead and her body would never be found. He later withdrew his statement, claiming he had misunderstood their question. After the police questioned the brother in law, he moved out of the country. <laughs> wow. Uh, when they tried to question Vittoria a second time, he was in a mental hospital by that point, and the doctor refused to let the interview continue. The third suspect, of course, Hans Osman. Hans' wife told police on the night of Kaliki's disappearance, Hans and his driver were near the town of um, Isajoka, Isayoka, Isay- Isayoki geez, uh, where Kaliki was heading when she was last seen. Hans owned a light brown car called an Opel, which witnesses had said they had seen in the area around the time of Kaliki's disappearance. His wife also claimed that when Hans returned home that night, his socks were missing, his shoes were wet, and there were dents in his car. When Hans and his driver left the house next, they took a shovel with them, Investigators later determined that that Kalicki's attacker was left-handed. As you may have guessed, Hans was left-handed. Former detective Madi Pallora claimed that in 1997, Hans confessed to being involved in Kalicki's death. However, Hans claimed his driver accidentally hit Kalicki with the car, and they buried her body to conceal the evidence. According to Pallora, Hans said, and this is a quote, One thing, however, I can tell you right away, because it is the oldest one, and in a way, it was an accident that had to be covered up. Otherwise, our trip would have been revealed. Even though my friend was a good driver, the accident was unavoidable. I assume you know what I mean. I don't know that we do, Hans. (laughs) I mean, I guess... My friend was a good driver. Well, I hope so cuz he was your chauffeur. Yeah. But also,
2: was he drinking? I mean,
3: it's also possible it was just maybe it was dark and they didn't see her and they hit her and it was genuinely an
2: accident and they were like, "Oh no." What was her cause of death listed as? Uh, they didn't say. Because that would be helpful, right? If it was like, because she was found in a bog. Yeah. Um That also doesn't feel I like they've buried the body. But I guess maybe you can bury. I think of a bog and I think of a swamp. But maybe I'm. Same. Yeah. Same.
3: Um I think, I'm wondering if maybe like the, because bo- the body was found five months later. I don't know if maybe it was too, they couldn't really tell by the time they found her.
0: Possible. Maybe. It, it was
3: never really said but um, yeah, the idea that he was like, "Oh yeah, that was our bad. That was absolutely us." I find it wild. I'd like to know if if Palora taped any of these conversations where this guy was like, "Hey, yeah, yeah, I'd like to. I I want to confess now." Or like, what? I don't know. Yeah, I what does that, that even look like exactly? Right. Uh, but as of August twenty twenty three, Kaliki Sari's case remains unsolved um the other case that hans might be linked to is the murder of two campers in july 1959
2: now we're getting somewhere
3: july 18th 23 year old rita olicki Pakinen and her best friend 21 year old Ina maria nisenin left their homes in you've uvascula for a cycling holiday i read that they wore matching straw hats on their trip which warms my heart because matching on a theme is how we live our lives Yep. uh on july 25th they wrote a postcard from north karelia approximately 94 miles or 152 kilometers away they said they were having a lovely time they said they were planning on leaving varcos on July 27th, with the plan to arrive home on the 29th or 30th, when Rita didn't show up on up to work, when she didn't show up at work on August 3rd, as scheduled, the families grew concerned. Ina's mother reported them both missing the following morning. With the help of Ina and Rita's families, police searched country roads in the area that they believed Ina and Rita were headed, which was between Polieveri, oh no! Polieveri, Polieveri, there we go! Wowza! Uh, and Piecimaki, the army helped with the ground support during the search, and the air force brought in helicopters, but nothing was found. Police learned that Ina and Rita first left home. Uh, they camped at a small village near near Piecimaki. From there, they biked fifty-four miles or eighty-seven kilometers to the village, ran to Salami, and then on to a campsite in the village Punkahario, which is another forty-eight miles or seventy-seven kilometers away. And I'll say it: these ladies were so excited about this trip, they like practiced because it was a journey, like they. One borrowed a bike from a brother, one bought a new bike, and they would go out, on like, they would practice biking because they knew they were going on this, like, extensive holiday, which, woof. Yeah. Kudos to them for the amount of work they put into it. Yeah. But uh the women then took a steamship through the Saima lake system from Savonlina to the city of Yoenso. They cycled... To North Karelia, where they sent the postcards to their families, then biked south to Polavieravi, whew, before moving on to Lee Perry, and then on to Tulilati Campground, which is situated on the shore, oh wow, um, of Lake Karamayaravi. wow! <laughs> I can't ever show my notes to show just how much I had to write (laughs) phonetically in this episode. Uh, While staying at the campground, Ina and Rita visited a nearby village called Hainavesi on July 27th. Ina stopped at a local shop and bought four donuts, four Danish pastries, and four glasses of milk. And I know what you're thinking. There were only two ladies. Why'd they buy four? because it turns out that they had become friendly with two local men, 21-year-old Heike and 18-year-old K.O. The guys spent some time at the women's campsite. They last saw them at 11.30 p.m. on July 27th. Two days later, K.O. returned to the campsite, hoping to see them again, but the women and their belongings were gone, so K.O. just believed the women had continued on their journey and gone home. But then Ko heard the news that Ina and Rita were missing, so he went to the police to show them the exact location where he had last seen them. This allowed the police to focus on a much smaller search area, and it led to August 21st, the discovery of the remains of Ina and Rita in a shallow grave in a bog about 705 feet from the campsite where K.O. last saw them. The grave was covered in tree branches and pine saplings, which had, they somehow determined that these saplings had been cut with a very specific kind of knife, which will come into play in a moment, uh, Police also discovered a shovel hidden in the area, which they believed was used to dig the grave. And somehow they learned that the shovel had originally come from a farm 0.3 miles or 500 meters from the scene. Ina's autopsy revealed she'd been strangled and stabbed multiple times, one of which time uh, punctured her lung. Her cause of death was listed as blood loss. Rita's autopsy revealed she had been stabbed several times in the chest and hit in the head. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma. While Ina was nude when she was found, neither woman had been sexually assaulted. 8,000 people attended Ina and Rita's joint funeral. Sadly, Rita was the fifth child in her family to die at a young age. Oh my god. She, she was the third youngest of 12 siblings. So when police located the saddlebags from Ina and Rita's bikes, they noted that they assumed the attacker or attackers rifled through them. At some point, Rita's watch was found, but it looked based on the band like it had been ripped from her wrist. The women's money and Rita's camera, which she I believe was borrowing from her brother, Uh, And some clothing of theirs, including those matching straw hats, were missing from the scene. The tent was found. It had been slashed with a knife. The bottom floor section of the tent had been completely ripped off. And to this day, that section has never been found. On September 4th, the victims' bicycles were discovered in the deepest part of the lake, 426 feet from the campground, The air had been let out of the tires so that the bikes would sink. Five local men were arrested and questioned regarding the murders, including three brothers who lived at the farm where the shovel had come from. Police were unable to find any evidence against the men, and all five were quickly released without charge. Also, not one of the brothers, but one of the other two who were arrested. Uh, He was a gravedigger. But they found no evidence he was let go. Then on November 6th, three months after Ina and Rita were first reported missing, police arrested 35-year-old Eric Runar Holmstrom. He had previously been arrested for a series of burglaries in the area, and on his most recent arrest, he was found carrying a gun, two pairs of women's underwear, and a knife that matched the type which they believe was used to cut the saplings that covered Ina and Rita's remains. Eric claimed he was innocent, and while in prison awaiting his trial, he took an overdose of sleeping pills in March 1960, leaving a note saying he was innocent. He did end up surviving that, and his trial began June 8, 1960, just three days after the Lake Bodum murders. A month later, some of Ina and Rita's missing clothing including those matching hats, were found on a road between Hainavesi and Varkos. The items found were in too good of condition to have been left there for the entire year that they'd been missing, so it was believed the items were placed there very recently. And since Eric was in jail the entire time, it's likely he wasn't the one who put the items on the road Does that mean he wasn't involved in the crime? Well, we'll never know. Eric hanged himself in his cell in May 1961 while waiting to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. And even though his trial started in June 1960, by the time of Eric's death 11 months later, the trial was still somehow ongoing. And so because of his death, the trial just ended with no verdict. But we can't forget about the suspect that brought us here in the first place, Hans Osman. Several witnesses saw two men speaking German at a kiosk in Punkahario two days before the murders. One of the men fit the description of Hans. And once again, His wife was quick to tell police she believed her husband was in that area at the time of the crime. Also, those two men seen were seen buying a map for the Tulilati campground where Ina and Rita were last seen alive. So was Hans involved. It's possible. But as of August 2023, Ina and Rita's murders remain unsolved. Now, since both Kalikki, sorry, and Ina and Rita were all buried in shallow graves in bogs, does that mean their murders were committed by the same person or persons? And if Hans really did confess to Kaliki's murder, then maybe it means he was also responsible for Ina and Rita as well. Or were Ina and Rita's deaths connected to the Lake Bodum murders because they both occurred in campgrounds with the tents slashed. The two women were stabbed, and Rita suffered blunt force trauma, just like the four Bodum victims. It wouldn't be surprising for a killer or killers to escalate from killing two people in July 1959 to attempting to kill four people 11 months later if the two crimes were committed by the same person, Eric Holmstrom was in prison during the Bodum attack, so he couldn't have been responsible. And if he wasn't responsible for that, uh, and the crimes were done by the same person, then that means he was, in fact, innocent for Ina and Rita's murders. Of course, we have no way of proving that. Mm. Uh, But the Tulilati campground was approximately 240 miles or 385 kilometers northeast of Lake Bodom, which is quite a distance. Maybe the killer chose a further location so the police wouldn't connect it and realize it was a serial killer situation. Maybe they aren't connected at all. Maybe camping is just terrifying. (laughs) I don't know. But... While Hans was never charged with any of these crimes, he was convicted of attacking his own wife in 1963. And if that's how Hans treated his wife, it's no wonder that she repeatedly told police her husband was at a crime scene. Maybe she only said it so he would get arrested and she would finally be safe from him. He did some prison time for the attack on her It was never publicly stated how long. Uh, The police spoke with Hans very briefly about the Lake Bodum investigation, but they didn't fully look into him because they just fully believed his alibi. Hans said he was with his girlfriend and two other people in Helsinki overnight. A reminder from earlier, Helsinki is about 16 miles or 27 kilometers southeast of the location, so it would be more than possible to travel there, commit the murders, and return without anyone noticing. However, it doesn't seem as though Hans had a motive for going there, so unless he went there hoping to stumble upon some campers, then I'm not convinced Hans was the killer. And the police certainly weren't convinced because they did not fully look into him even after doctors told the police Hans showed up at the hospital a day after, covered in possible blood. The fact that his clothes were never collected for testing blows my mind. Because maybe Hans wasn't responsible for the Bodum murders, but maybe the blood would have proven he was responsible for another brutal crime. Hans died in Sweden in June 1998 at the age of 74. He was the main suspect in the Lake Boda murders until DNA testing more than 40 years later gave police a new suspect, one that they were honest and said they had not considered at all in the original investigation. Who was their now main suspect? Niels Gustafson the sole survivor of the attack. Whoa. So 44 years after the crime, Niels was arrested in March 2004 when police claimed they had new evidence from the crime. At this point, Niels was no longer the fresh-out-of-school 18-year-old with a motorcycle. He was now a 61-year-old married father of two who drove a bus for a living. The families of Seppo, Tuliki, and Myla all supported the prosecution, which is sad to feel like they turned against him, but it's also understandable as it was probably difficult for the families to come to terms with the fact that Niels survived, but their loved ones did not. Even after more than 40 years, Neil's story remained the same. He said he didn't remember much from the entire camping trip, except he kind of remembers they went fishing during the day, and briefly during the attack, he remembered seeing a blonde man dressed in black. The case was revisited in 2004, and all evidence that had been collected was retested using more advanced DNA technology. Based on that testing, in early 2005, the Finnish National Bureau of Investigation announced that the Lake Bodum case had been solved, and that Niels Gustafson was responsible, which is wild to me that they didn't just say we have evidence to believe he might have committed the crime. They just publicly said he did it. Case solved. Done. Of course, they had to do some sort of trial. It started August 4th, 2005. The prosecution argued that Niels was drunk and got kicked out of the tent by the three victims this led to a fist fight between Niels and Seppo, during which Niels' jaw was broken. A witness who was allegedly staying at a nearby campsite claimed she had seen the two men in a heated argument, during which Niels appeared heavily intoxicated. The thing that makes this witness unreliable to me, though, is that she waited 45 years before going to the police with her story. Yeah. And after more than four decades, it's more than possible she doesn't remember exactly what she saw. And if she didn't know these people personally, how did she know which one Niels was and which one Seppo was when she saw them at a distance? Because she didn't say one of them was very drunk. She specifically said, well, Niels was very drunk. I know it. Mm. Because based on the photos of them, to see them from a distance... If they were strangers, you wouldn't necessarily know which one was which. I also can't. Did that woman, does she have proof to show that she was there? Who knows? Uh, She seemed to know. She said that Niels was the one who was heavily intoxicated. But according to Myla's diary, which was found at the scene, Seppo was the one who was incredibly drunk, more so than Niels. Uh, so drunk that he went fishing by himself at 2 a.m. So I believe that there was drinking, and I believe that one of them got more drunk than the other, but I just find it interesting that one of the victims had written that it was the other one as opposed to what this supposed witness uh, was saying. Yeah. But it just feels sketchy to me. The alleged witness waited 45 years To come forward. But the prosecution used the witness to push the idea that Niels was so drunk and he got in this fight with Seppo, which led to Niels just attacking his friends in a blind rage. Did Seppo and Niels have a fight? Maybe. In court, they were suggesting that the fight was how Niels' jaw was broken. (laughs) But, uh, I'm not convinced that someone with a massive injury like that would then have the strength to stab and bludgeon three people. Yeah, not to mention, he'd have to take the specific items that were missing, including the murder weapons, hide them somewhere that they have never been found to this day, and then cause injury, more injuries to himself before the bodies were found. But the reason they were so convinced that Niels was guilty was because of his shoes, which were discovered partially hidden in the woods about 0.3 miles or 500 meters south of the tent. When the shoes were retested in 2004, it was determined the only blood on the shoes belonged to Seppo, to Licky, and Mila. Neil's blood was nowhere on those shoes. So did the attacker put on Neil's shoes... and randomly stab at the tent... and somehow manage to not hit Neil's right away? Because as you may recall... it was determined the killer cut the tent lines first... causing the tent to collapse... And then he stabbed the victims blindly through the tent. So is it possible the killer didn't hit Niels until he was outside of the tent somehow? Or maybe the fight did occur and Niels was kicked out of the tent? Maybe he passed out somewhere else and woke up when he heard screaming, ran back to the tent and was attacked by the killer? Maybe the killer was a vagrant traveling through the area and he stole Niels' shoes Or maybe Niels really did commit the horrific crime. I just don't see a motive. According to the defense team, Niels' blood was found inside the tent. But did that come from an altercation with Seppo before the murders? But let's assume he did kill his friends in a blind rage. If so, would an 18-year-old kid... Have the state of mind after committing a brutal attack to stage the scene, hide his shoes and hide the murder weapons, then cause enough injuries to himself to look like he was another victim. Even with his blood missing from the shoes, I just don't buy that he would have had the thought in mind to do all of that, especially after being crazed and committing such a horrific
2: crime. That's not a it's smoking just, gun to me. The, yeah. the the lack of his blood on the shoes. Like, okay, sure. But it, that's not like the fact that they were, yeah, to me, I agree. It's like, well, sure, but that's not like a slam dunk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Agreed.
3: Yeah. Uh, especially because, as a reminder, Niels suffered a broken jaw a head wound, he had something, I think it was above the left ear, Uh, a concussion, and he had a deep cut to his face that seemed too severe to have been self-inflicted. While pushing Niels as the killer, police suggested that maybe Niels made a pass at his own girlfriend, and she turned him down which is why she got stabbed more than the other two victims. Niels and Mila were dating at the time of the crime. Mila was found on top of the tent. The other two were inside, and some of her wounds were inflicted after her death. So I can see their point, that there had to be a reason why Mila took the brunt of the attack. But maybe Mila was positioned closest to the side of the tent that the killer attacked first. And since the killer was stabbing blindly, they'd be more likely to stab the same person repeatedly without even realizing it. Because they cut the the strings, the tent came down. If she was the closest to them and they'd started stabbing, she could have easily gotten stabbed more times than everybody else. Yeah, Seppo's knife was missing from the scene. It's possible that the knife was used during the attack. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that Niels was the one who did it. Whoever stumbled upon them could have used it. Um, and if the object used to bludgeon the victims was like something like a rock, well, the killer could have just tossed it into the water. And the police would never have been like, oh, look, deep in the water, you can see a rock with blood on it. You know, like, yeah, that's not going to come up on like the metal detector that they were using. Uh, the water and area surrounding were searched with metal detectors, but no knife or metal blunt object was ever found. They also never found the keys to the boys' motorcycles, which feels like somebody killed them and then took the keys in case they survived so that none of them could go for help. That's what it feels like. Is And also, I'd love to know how they left the area and why they didn't just take one of the bikes. Did they live close enough to the area that they didn't need to? I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that. But in October 2005, the court determined that there was not enough evidence to charge Niels Gustafsson with murder. He was released and given 44,900 euros for the mental suffering that he incurred during his more than 500 days spent in prison. Wow. Wow. Uh, Those euros are equivalent to about 91,000 U.S. dollars in 2023. Niels asked for permission from the court uh, to sue Finnish newspapers for defamation based on what they printed about him since his arrest. His permission was denied. So was Niels the real Lake Bodom attacker or was he just another victim all along? And if it wasn't Niels, was it Valdemar Gilstrom or Hans Osman? Or maybe someone that even the police didn't know about? Either way, the case remains one of the most unsolved the most famous unsolved murder cases in Finland's history. The case inspired a Finnish movie called Lake Bodum, which was released in 2016. The case also inspired a name change for a melodic death metal band. Which was formed in Finland in 1993. The band was first called Inearthed, but at some point, because of the Lake Bodum murders, they changed their name to Children of Bodum. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, after the name change, the band then worked with Fat Lizard Brewing Company to launch Lake Bodum Lager which was made with water from Lake Bodum. Their website describes the beer as, quote, the perfect beer for socializing, dinner, headbanging, or lakeside camping. And I get where you were going with that, but if your name is based on a murder of that occurred at, during lakeside camping, maybe don't put that in your advertising. Um, children of Bodum disbanded. In
2: 2019.
3: Mm. Uh, Tackling a cold case is always difficult when there aren't any new leads, and the case has come to a standstill. The murders at Lake Bodum happened 63 years ago, and at this point, it is hard to believe the killer will ever be punished. The thought of someone getting away with these brutal murders is enraging, especially when you realize that an attack this vicious and angry likely means that either it wasn't the killer's first time, or it wasn't their last. At this point, it's most likely that the killer is no longer alive, which doesn't give justice to the victims. We can only hope that people will continue to remember them, Seppo Boisman, Myla Bjorklund, Tuliki Mackey, and Niels Gustafsson, who has not only been forced to live with this horror for most of his life, but who has also had to go through being accused of the crime, which I can't imagine. Uh, Adding even more sadness to the situation, just six months after the murders happened, Tuliki's mother passed away at the age of 51. And while that is a lot of grief for one family in a short span of time, I will also sadly remind you that when Tuliki first mentioned that camping trip to her parents, her father said no, and it was her mother who convinced him to let their daughter go. I can't begin to imagine the guilt her mother lived with after that. I do hope that someone told her that what happened to her daughter was not her fault, because it absolutely in no way was. Uh, going out on a depressing note, I'm Christy Oxborough.
2: <sighs> listen. I have so many thoughts in this. Let's hit the camel one more time, grab one more drink, and we're going to be back with thoughts and theories on the Lake Bowden Murders episode of True Crime and Cocktails.
0: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available...
2: Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Lake Bodom murders. I have many thoughts. Okay, forgive me. Mm. In my rush of taking notes, yeah. was it Tulicky or Mila that had the scarf put over their face? Tuliki. Uh, Tuliki. licky. Too licky. And who was found inside. That's what I thought. Ten- and and yeah. she was dating Seppo. Seppo. Yes. I have wild theories here, but um it's just important to note that because as we know, if I'm putting my pathologist hat on, hey, that's no. a hat I like to wear. Um <laughs> typically that is something that is done when the killer knows the victim that is quite often right or or regards the victim in a in a way that they want to protect them or shield their innocence all of these kinds of things that is not me suggesting that that is why her face was covered but it's just an interesting thing to note because also the other girl's face wasn't covered right yeah so i'm gonna be jumping around like crazy um because it was also Mila was it Mila who was nude from the waist down? Yes, so that's interesting too, that Mila was disrobed in some way, yeah, um, but Tuliki's face was covered. that's two very different kind of placements of bodies. now, the only other thing I would offer into the conversation, and I'm going to preface this by saying this is not me suggesting. Any anything. You'll know what I mean when I say it. Is it possible if we're going down the road? Now listen, do I think that that Niles, Niles, Niels, how do we pronounce that again? Niels. Do I think that Niels did it? I don't personally. Again, I agree with you that I think it would be a lot for a teenager to be super drunk, pull this off, hide these items. The the keys to me is almost, it's not a smoking gun, but it's the closer thing where it's like, why would anyone take those keys to those motorcycles unless it was, if they're alive, if they're somehow gonna survive this, I wanna make sure they can't get out of here so that they die here. That's how the I interpreted that. And there would be no motive if, unless he is some sort of master mastermind In this crime, which, again, I don't believe we've had anything to prove that to us. But he would have to have planned those details and planned a way to get rid of them. Whether he was sober or not, it's also the middle of the night. I don't think it's easy to pull those things off. You know what I'm saying? What it feels like to me. Oh, and well, again, I'm jumping all over the place. What was the DNA that they found of his that was like, that's our guy? Because if he had been in the tent at any time. Like, what was the DNA? Was it semen? Was it because there was no sexual assaults being uh, that we had heard? Was it blood? Because by the way, both of those things could be in that tent. And that absolutely does not mean that he committed that crime. He was in that tent. They were staying there. His DNA being present, the only place where that would be a viable, again, I hate that I keep using the term smoking gun. But the only place where that would be a viable smoking gun is if his DNA slash fingerprints were found on the murder weapon and the murder weapon's never been found. So what I can't wrap my head around is how they would have said, we've got the DNA, we've got our guy. When it's like, but wait a second. It
3: seems to me that what they found, what to them that made them go, well, obviously it's him, is because his shoes, the shoes they believed that the killer wore, had only the blood of the other three victims and none of Neil's blood. That's the only thing I can tell that they had that made them go, he did it! And then they like were like, case uh, closed. And then
2: it's like, well, no. Not at not. all. Not at all. Yeah, it, th- th- it's just wild to me that, that they... We're so convinced of his guilt when, again, there's nothing. We also know the crime scene was contaminated. That's another thing to keep in mind here. Yep. And I just can't think of any any way that his DNA could be present unless it's on a murder weapon. Even if it was on other people that were there, they were all staying in the tent at the same time. Again, any half-decent lawyer is going to prove reasonable doubt with that like that's just and i mean listen it sounds like they did unfortunately he was it was quite a quite an ordeal to get there but um to me also like one of the scenarios that feels kind of the most plausible truthfully is uh was it voldemort voldemort (laughs) i know that that's not (laughs)
3: I know that it 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 took a turn to Harry
2: Potter. Uh, Valdemar, Valdemar? yeah. What feels possible to me, considering he had a history of this behavior and potentially a motive, was: is it possible these kids were getting very drunk and loud? He knew that they were there because his wife had told them there's kids camping in the area. He leaves the house in the middle of the night to check things out because he sounded like this was the kind of behavior that he would exhibit. Niels is sleeping away from the tent. The mm-hmm. attack happens. the tent is cut. the the uh, assault is happening. Niels wakes up, potentially comes over to try and stop this, which again it's 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 also more than possible that he wouldn't remember any of this. Um, sure. And then it's something about the the him getting attacked back that the way that the blood splatter went like that he never re-entered the tent so getting their blood on him wouldn't have been possible. The only blood of theirs that would have gotten on him was from allegedly Valdemar if if he had their blood on him then him transferring it to Niels. Like like to me it's just it seems very literal how that could happen. Like, that's not hard to connect those dots. The fact also that his wife recanted on her deathbed, his alibi, the fact that he had admitted this to people, people said, if you did commit this crime, you should drown yourself, and then he was found drowned. I don't know. Like, to me, if I'm being 100% honest, that's the one that sticks out to me as being the most, again, because as we know, usually the easiest explanation is the truth. That feels pretty, he's got a motive because he has this, I'll say it, bizarre fascination with campers in the area. He had exhibited that behavior before. Is it also possible that he had come across the the, the kids? I'm, I'm putting this together as I go, his, why I'm stuttering. Is it possible he had come across like, like, was there something going on in the tent? Like, did he strip strip her partially nude? Or was there something sexual happening that that had been come across in that moment? Like, are there details to this case, is my point, that feel like they are pieces of evidence in the crime that could potentially have not been connected? And I think the answer to that is we'll obviously never know because the crime scene was completely contaminated so we could speculate forever. But I just think, again, when looking at this and looking at the what feels the most plausible to me, that feels pretty plausible to me. Yes. Oh, I find it wild that they like if
3: you start interviewing local people. Yeah. Your thought as a cop was never Maybe we should look harder into the the guy that seems to hate tourists. Who had a connection to the area. Nearby. Yeah. And it took them six years to question him at all. And then they questioned him and just went, ah, okay, well. I also If just, your family says you were
2: home, yeah. obviously that's. They'll never lie you for know, you. Um, right? The other thing I wanted to add, this was the other thought I was trying to put together that I was stuttering through before it's also more than possible that the that seppo and niels got into a fist fight that's completely oh, yeah. possible there's more than possible that they could have been heard fighting that there could have been a dramatic altercation that doesn't first of all that doesn't prove that he killed them Correct. uh niels killed his friends and second of all the two things can be true right like it could be possible that some of these injuries could have been between the two getting into a fight is it possible the girls tried to get in between them? One of them got, unfortunately, in the line of fire in some, of, of a fist of theirs. Like, all of that is plausible. But that could also be part of, like, the ruckus. Like, again, in trying to paint this picture, is it possible? The kids, it's the middle of the night. They're loud. They're yelling, whatever. Um, what's his name? Voldemar goes down there, hears this is so enraged because he has this thing about, like, his number one thing was the the noise yeah. that it escalated for him in a way that it never had before. Is that possible, too? Where it's, like, the reason why this escalated from his past behavior of just cutting the tent and this turned into this blind rage, you know? Again, I'm, I'm speculating. I'm trying to write a story. I'm trying to piece this together because we have so little to go on in terms of the crime scene. Um, I'd like to know... Um, which they never sit, seem
3: to have mentioned, did they take any photos um, of Niels when they first found him? Were his hands bloody at all? Because they mentioned that there were abrasions on uh, his left hand. But it's like, were his hands like covered in blood like you would be if you stabbed people multiple times?
2: Yeah, there would have to be Yes. Great, great question. And again, I just feel like it's more than possible that he was sleeping off to the side. He woke up, and I understand that the three of their, I I think I didn't articulate this well before, the three of their blood was on the shoes. Well, it's possible he could have walked over, walked through this as he's discovering what's happening. And again, I just don't know that his blood spatter not going onto his own shoes is a, is again, to me, if we were uh, in the... Defense of this case. Sure. First of all, uh, heavy workload. <laughs> yeah. Second yeah. of where are we going to find the time? Second of all, um, I'd love to do some tests to see if we could recreate the blows that he had on him. Sure. Where does the blood splatter go? If you're punched in the face with an item or a fist so hard that your jaw has broken. We've seen that. Anyone who's ever watched a boxing match ever, when when a boxer gets like one of those real blows to the face and they go out, to me, I don't think that the blood is automatically hitting their own shoes. That doesn't, that like defies physics, right? Like it's more than possible if he was hit in the face hard enough to the point that he was blacked out. Because again, we know he had this broken jaw, which that could cause yeah. that. Um, then he's out and he's bleeding horizontally he's not bleeding down onto his own feet that's again like blood isn't going to trickle horizontally correct it could seep that way but it was also summer right like it's going to end with his shorts I would think if he was wearing shorts
3: again the idea of you and I in like (laughs) a lab somewhere with one of those CSI like busts that's like made of a rubbery, yep. jello y type thing. And we're like hitting it with things and punching it to st- and taking, fo- oh, taking photos of the different things to try and find. That's, uh, we, we're looking for answers. I wanna go full CSI.
2: Yeah, my, I, fir- want, I want like 100%, the show. hundred percent, hundred percent. Because also, here's the other thing it's also possible. Like, what? did they test his whole body? This is the other thing. Was his body covered in all three of their bloods and none of his own? Like, these are the questions that we don't have the answers to, right? So it's, it's, again, the first thing that I would do as a defense attorney is hire blood spatter experts and go, let's do some testing about what the, the logistics are of this. And, again, to me, that proves absolutely nothing. The fact that his shoes were removed... And put somewhere else is also interesting to me. It almost feels to me like the killer, when approaching, took off his own shoes. Because I don't need to tell you, footprints, how many cases? Richard Ramirez got busted on a footprint. Right. Isn't it possible that someone who was premeditating a murder would take his shoes off as he was approaching the crime scene, could then put on someone else's shoes to leave, go back to the place where he had stashed his shoes originally, then switched out. Oh, it's more than possible. Again, it's it's infuri this is again one of those infuriating ones where it's like, it's just so sad. Anytime a, a crime scene is contaminated, it just makes my stomach turn because it's like, well Yeah. We'll never well, know. And
3: also uh because they didn't consider Neil's a suspect for 40 years. Right. There was no need for photos of or testing anything on him to see is there blood from everybody else on him or not. They just went, oh, no. And look, I don't think he did it at all. But in that
2: moment, they should have been like, we should look into it. Yes. It's just like we've said on this show multiple times. If you think it is a suicide, I want it treated. I want that crime scene treated as a homicide. Yes. In this case, guilty until proven innocent. You know what I'm saying? Or I guess you could still say innocent until proven guilty. My whole point is, is that it's like, yeah, in that moment, three of them are dead. One of them's alive. I I would like to think that by today's standards, and I know that we could give a million examples of when it doesn't happen, but I feel like now if three kids are dead and one is alive, even if he's badly beaten, I think they're probably going to do some testing of, the, the clothes and whatnot that he's wearing. 100%. Anyway. um, Then my next note was just, didn't he want to go by Richard? That's a dick-ass man reference. Um, <laughs> oh, I think he knew what he had. I think he did too. And was like just, I think that's part
3: of the reason he was so beloved. In, in <laughs> of the course. Area. Of course. That everyone was like, what a delight. Every, 99% of people go, oof that name's unfortunate. And that 1% were like, that name's fucking gold. Yeah. And I think he just had a sense of humor about it. And that's how it was like, okay, well I'm going to run with it. So I think that's why he absolutely ran with Dick.
2: Ran with Dick. I like that a lot. (laughs) Now listen, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up this. Um, The details about Hans, ass man. Yeah. Didn't expect Nazis to be brought into this. Didn't expect it to be a Romeo and Juliet type story that got him into the spy business. Again, these are the wild details of these stories. Yeah. Here's what I do have to say. It is interesting to me, the first murder that he was potentially linked to, that he said it was like, well, it was the oldest one and it was technically an accident. Like, it's interesting to hear him talk that way. Because then this next one, there is the same... Um, M.O. in terms of burying them in a bog, right? So that does feel like a connection between those two cases. What I find interesting is that there are some other, you know, the tent being slashed, that's another kind of M.O. similarity to the, the Bodum murders. The fact that Rita was nude but had not been assaulted, that's also a similar M.O. Like, it is interesting to me that the belongings were never found or they weren't found, again, until... Much later, right? Right. Um, it's interesting to me, the bikes were found in a lake, which could kind of parallel stealing the keys to the motorcycles
0: because
2: it was sure. getting rid of a way of mode of transportation for them. That's true, yeah. A lot of similarities there. I guess for me, what it all comes down to, and you said it literally the moment I was writing it down, you said it, which was, what is his motive? That's that's the one question that feels tough to answer. Now, yeah. the idea that he would potentially have been working with his driver, so potentially there was two men committing this crime at Lake Bodum was interesting to me because it did yeah. feel like, you know, with the amount of – now, I do think it's also possible for one person to have committed it, given the fact that three of them were you know, – two to three of them were being – stabbed through a tent in the middle of the night waking them up like I do think that that is a unfortunate advantage to the killer so I do believe it plausible that someone could have done it alone but the idea also that there could have been two of them is is interesting right is it something where these two accidentally hit that woman um hit the first victim Kaliki? buried the body and then got a got a taste for killing? I mean I, I I don't feel like the answer is yes, but it's is it possible? Who knows? Who knows? Sure. There isn't enough connecting them obviously to me to be able to say like I think this is really possible, but it is just interesting the, the similarities between the two. Um yeah. Then I just wrote down a lot of things that you were saying as you were, like, we were, we were, I was like one step bu- uh, ahead of you in in your notes where I would be like, where did their stuff go? Where did their stuff go? Like, it was literally like, it, we were just, we were really yeah. in sync on this one. We've um, been very in sync. All day today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we should get tickets to in sync if they uh, do that reunion show <gasps> that we've been talking oh, about. Um, I hope they do. <laughs> you and me both. But yeah, it's. It's just interesting to me, ultimately. it, it the, Well, first of all, that they p- put this on Niels, that they gave him a, like, you know, just under $100,000 U.S. to as a sorry, we put you in jail for almost two full years as we put you through this trial that we couldn't prove after we announced it in the newspapers that you absolutely were the killer before you would had a trial, which at yeah. least by North American standards is wildly unethical. Um it's just it's just wild to me, and how sad if we are to believe that he didn't do it. And I, my gut is telling me that he didn't. What a tragic life! You go through this horrific, horrific experience, and then you get put on trial for it without enough evidence. In your 60s. in your sixties, and you're put in prison for two years in your sixties, and you get ninety one k. Not listen ninety one thousand dollars. Absolutely nothing to turn your nose up at. That's a great chunk of money. Not for this. I think very low. I think that's a very low amount of money for being put in prison for two years with with these specifics. The fact that he was announced as absolutely being the killer before getting a trial. I think he deserved a lot more money than that personally. Um, Yes. The only other thing I wanted to add was I did a quick Google on one of our breaks about hypnosis. Now, in my quick Google, of course I couldn't get an answer to our question. But what it did remind me Is the other thing that is important to note is that false memories can be implanted either deliberately or inadvertently when doing hypnosis. This is, I think it's, they say 20 to 60% of people or something. I It's a quick Google, don't come for me, don't fact check me. I'm likely, you know, could be misquoting. But my point on this only is, I am also curious, and I didn't have time, um, how much those details hold up in in court. I don't know... Sure. Because, like, lie detector tests, as we know, very flawed. Often don't hold up in court because we know that it's a flawed technology. I'm curious if... I I do believe there's been cases with repressed memories that people have have found through hypnosis, and I don't believe that those are always considered. I, I think that that's dicey to prove in court also or to hold up in court. Sure. So I think the other important thing that I just wanted to say on the hypnosis factor is this was also the 1960s so yep. I, do i believe that it was in a crime you know look in a case where the crime scene was bungled beyond belief barely investigated nothing yep. really You know, no evidence being taken, all of the above. Do I believe then that they absolutely pulled off the hypnosis 100% using the best person that was absolutely flawless? I don't know. You've kind of lost my trust, guys. This is a little boy-cried-wolf situation for me. You know. So I only offer that again that it's interesting just to add that the memory that he had could have been real. But to base the main suspect drawing on... This repressed memory is is also kind of a bold choice, right? Like, sure. When it's like, this is the suspect. It's it's kind of a bold choice. Because you're now leading people a certain way, right? When you don't really fully know. And I know that eyewitnesses, sometimes that can be, you know, on a spectrum of being reliable to unreliable. But I would just say I think building an entire case on a drawing of a memory that was brought out in hypnosis after someone suffered severe head trauma feels questionable to me. Yes! Oh,
3: the majority of the handling of this was questionable.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because if we're exonerating uh, Voldemar because he didn't fit the description of the suspect. I, to me, I'm like, again, in a court of law, I certainly think now I would be like, I think a good lawyer could could argue out of that, that it's like, it was a repressed memory. Here are the facts about all of that. We, we can't be basing someone's potential innocence or guilt on the drawing that, again, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I also still can't believe that they're like, solid alibi (laughs) his wife his wife his own wife yeah at at their own home Mm. and then years later she's like oh yeah i lied yeah
3: i mean which is like well that's probably why spouses should not be allowed to be each other's solid only alibi i
2: didn't think that most courts allowed that or it at least is again it's something that again a good defense lawyer can um, poke holes in, yeah. Or prosecution in that case. Sorry, my my mind is swirling. Um. Anyway, that's my person. My personal theory on this, and it's rare for me to make such a definitive statement, but is is Voldemar. That is that is my personal. Again, I feel like the most details point to that. Do I think again that it could be a conviction in a court of law? Probably not, as we know. Um. But it just feels to me that that's the simplest line. Yeah. he's He was no, he had a
3: history. He had a history. Of cutting the strings on tents. Or not I know they're not strings, but you know, yes. you know what I mean. Um, and like being angry at tourists and campers. And it could very well have been the boys fighting. He heard the noise. He approached it. He saw them and was like, oh no, that's it. And maybe he didn't do it at that point. Maybe he's like, I'm going to wait and come back because I can't fend off two of them. So he went, sees what the noise is, checks out the situation, and is like, there's the four of them in there. Okay, good to know. Waited till they would be asleep, came back, cut the tent wire, and just got them all. Yeah. Like it's more than possible. I also find it fascinating. He owned a business that heavily relied upon (laughs) tourists. Yeah. And he was like,
2: God damn those tourists. It's like, then why'd you have the business? Well, he didn't work it either. He was working as a a gardener at the time. Correct. It feels to me like psychologist hat on. There's something very deep about that, which would only make me feel like he's more of a strong suspect. Because- why? You're right. So your parents owned this business that they passed down to you and your wife that relies solely on tourism, and you hate tourists. Okay, it doesn't take a it doesn't take a psychologist hat wearer um, to make some connections, which is like, well, clearly, the two things are deeply connected. Sure. Right. So he has to have some resentment of. Is it that all of his parents' time were spent, was spent at the kiosk, that he never got to hang out with his parents because they were constantly working? Did he become resentful of tourists because they were taking his parents away from him?
3: Okay.
2: Wow. As a child, right? Like, Like, there has sure. to be a reason, especially considering he wasn't working it, but he owned it. That's rare.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I do find that interesting, but... Yeah, I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense to be like, oh, well, we need tourists, but if they come anywhere near me, I swear. (laughs) And it's like, but you need them for your business that you own, that you don't seem
2: to want to own. Like, yeah, there's just. I just feel like that uh, there's like a deep trauma or resentment that has built since childhood. That, That would be my. That would be my first, again, if I'm the, if I'm the prosecution here, I'm going to be like, let's dig into that of childhood. Where's this coming of course. from? Of course. We always want to know about the childhood. Oh yeah. But yeah, because it doesn't make sense otherwise. Why would you want to, why would you be so angry at the only way for your business to stay alive? Yeah. Anyway. Um, listen, this was fascinating. What a case. Yeah, what a case! Did you well, have any fun going to Europe? It's fun taking a trip over across the pond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you have any other uh, any other thoughts? Uh, no, just uh, <laughs> just a, a a little
3: lighter in the shoulders, I think, from uh, being done pronouncing some. Of oh those. yeah, these I were forgot that s- some of those were 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 a
2: bit tricky. These were absolutely. No joke. But listen, fantastic work as always. You nailed it. 12 out of 10. Out of the park. We thank you for your work. I, uh, I'll take it. And listen, we it. thank this you, dear hard. listeners, for coming with us across the across the lake to Europe there uh, yeah. on this True Crime and Cocktails episode. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails on Twitter. Twitter, the site formerly known as Twitter, at Not Detectives, <laughs> And of course, if you'd like some additional content, go to patreon.com slash Cocktails, where you can learn about our subscription-based service. Uh, there's all kinds of fun stuff going on over there, so we encourage that uh, if you're interested. And the only place for official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails... The Duggers. Oh boy. Get a lot of requests for this one. We get a lot Wait. of requests. So we, we uh, you speak and we listen, and here we go. We're going to get into it. My God, what a ride. Um, yeah. Christy, do you want to tell the, uh, say goodnight to the people? Uh, Good night, Liam Neeson. Good night, dick ass man.